Hello and welcome to Make Money and Stick It to the Man with me, Dominic Frisbee. And I'm talking today to a chap called Peter Young. Now, I met Peter through the internet, through Twitter, because he put together these excellent threads summarising libertarian uh, books. And uh, he put together a couple of threads summarising my excellent libertarian books, and we became friends as a result. And Peter is now working with a body called the Free Cities Foundation. And so we're going to find out a little bit about Peter today. And we're also going to find out a little bit about the Free Cities Foundation. Now, one last thing before I bring you into the conversation, Peter, is I should say, because we don't have uh, video, because this is audio only, nobody can see what you look like. So I'm going to say you are early 30s. Correct. Early 30s. And if you were a foreigner, you would say Peter is the archetypical Englishman, a well-spoken, nice, clean-cut um, well-behaved Englishman, <laughs> the sort of man you'd be happy uh, to introduce your daughter to. Extremely so, <laughs> well-behaved, of course. So, Peter, I, I think you started your career working for the Foreign Service in China, is that right? Well, I started out my career working for the British Council. I did some English teaching in China. Um, then I did private English teaching for a few years. And then I joined the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office from 2014, did some work with the British Embassy and the consulates, and then... Always in China. Always in China, mm -hmm. yeah. And then I joined uh, another organisation called the Connected Places Catapult, uh, which is one of the UK Catapult networks. And in total, I was in China for 10 years. Wow. And we've been talking a lot about China in recent articles. Is it as... Did you see the presentation by Lee Schooland at the uh, Students for Liberty conference? How accurate is that? And by the way, for those of you that aren't familiar familiar with Lee Schooland, if you look like two or three articles ago uh, in the Substack, you'll find a sort of summary of everything she said. But basically, China's a basket case. It's corrupt. It is the paper tiger, not the US. It's very authoritarian and it's vulnerable. So my take on China is not quite as negative. I think there's a tendency to look at China and take it at face value. A lot of people see that there's a communist regime in charge of, in charge of China, a nominally communist regime, and they say, this is what communism looks like. And if ideologically you think that communism is not good, you're more likely to see problems with that system. But from my perspective, the kind of system they have in China is a very mixed system. It's got some elements of uh, very uh, severe statism, uh, but it's also got some pretty free markets in certain certain areas of the economy. And which areas? In uh, lots of private uh, industry, in uh, electronics, in uh, clothing, you know, small small shops, whatever, whatever these things, manufacturing. Okay. All of these, all of these areas. Tech. Technology as well. Mm -hmm. There are the way it tends to work is that there are often uh, connections to the party in businesses, um, but the businesses still function and still have to make a profit and a loss. And you do have certain state-owned enterprises that are more protected. But actually, the vast majority of China's economy is now run by private enterprises. The okay, so not the 60% figure she was using, Skulan was citing. As in... the, the She said, the well, as she was talking about China's stock market, I think 60% of... She said 60% of China's GDP is state, but I think right. she meant 60% of the market cap of China's stock market is okay. state. Okay. 
So it's quite a big difference. I, I'm not sure about that uh, statistic, but that would. The thing is, you can get these very large statistics when you do things like include China state-owned banks, which are some of the world's largest or like companies. Um, so that creates a very large, um, you know, footprint in terms of uh, capitalization if you're trying yeah. to measure uh, stock values. Um, but uh, what I would say is that yeah, China is very much a mixed economy. There are certain ways in which there are. Um, it is more capitalist, much more capitalist than the West. And there's certain ways in which it's more status and more controlled than the West. And I think a lot of people that don't like China try to portray it as if it's a really like it's all it's all for show, like China's China portray this image. But actually, the people living in poverty. But I really don't think that's that's fair. There has been a really remarkable transformation in terms of the well-being of the Chinese people. Um, since the reform and opening period that began in 1979. And people are living uh, much, much better lives than they used to almost universally across the country. And so I think China's doing some things right. There are some things that I, I, I really vehemently disagree with, but I think that the marketization and the liberalization of China has been a very positive thing and has led to some very significant positive results. And as someone who was working a lot of the early career for the government. How did you end up becoming a libertarian-y kind of person? So, I think one of the issues you have with the government mm -hmm. is that you set out with particular objectives in mind, but you have no market signals. So, for example, the British Embassy in Beijing is running lots of projects to do things like uh, help combat climate change or to try and uh, prevent overuse of antibiotics or improve animal welfare, all these things that sound well and good. But how much UK taxpayer money should go on each of those particular projects? Well, if you have a market, you can see that people value a certain uh, good or service, like you can see like I'm holding an iPhone, uh, you can see that people value this at a certain price point. And as an entrepreneur, you try and guess what that price point was be, would be. And then you would manufacture and decide uh, how much capital you want to put at risk to produce that, that end product. But in the government, you're saying this is a good thing generally, but how much should you spend on it? There's really no way of knowing because the revenue that you're getting just comes from taxpayers. And what I found frustrating about the government, working within the government in general, was that everyone seemed to always want more money, more resources, find it scandalous that we didn't have more resources and money, but no one ever talked about cost-benefit analysis in the sense that, okay, this project is worth a million pounds. What's the cost of this to the UK of spending a million pounds that we wouldn't otherwise have? versus uh, the benefit. It was always, oh, look at the benefit without the cost. And of course, if you have a coercive centralized system, you can always look, create a benefit by siphoning resources from another area of the economy. And so I found that this kind of thinking was quite prevalent. I started to study the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, I got very interested in that. Uh, I discovered Bitcoin simultaneously, which got me into some kind of monetary economics theory. And uh, I started to realize that actually um, more free 
voluntarist, non-coercive, predictable systems um, would be preferable to the systems we have now where we have a powerful government that taxes all kinds of things at various rates. We have a huge industry that's solely responsible for calculating taxes. And we have a largely, I mean, in the UK, it's something like 45% of the economy at the moment is, is accounted for by government spending. Uh, you know, there, there are no sort of market signals within this. And I looked at the history of places like Hong Kong and other small city states, looked at Austrian economic theory, and I thought, actually, this represents a much better way of increasing prosperity uh, for, for people and improving people's lives. And which leads us very nicely into the Free Cities Foundation. Tell us about it, what it is, and uh, what you're doing for them. So the Free Cities Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation, and we focus on trying to create autonomous developments that are within uh, existing countries. And the way we do that is by seeking a parallel or independent legal framework that means that the individual zone within a country can decide on its own rules. It's not doesn't have to be subject to the laws of the the country in which it is the host state. And what that means is that a, uh, a operating company that, that manages this area can decide which kinds of regulations it wants to put in. It can also decide how it's going to raise its money. And the standard model that we propose is kind of like a apartment rental or like a you know having having rent for a place that you would you would live you know within a within a normal city which is that you you sign a contract um i've just been to visit some some properties down in bromley as i said to you and uh, there's a contract there where you pay a service charge every month that guarantees that the area is kept clean it guarantees that there's security it gives you a parking space access to roads etc and it's specified in a contract and you get what you pay for in terms of a service so what the Free Cities Foundation is doing is proposing that we extend this kind of model that we're familiar with in many different aspects of our lives, but just extend it further to the, the area of governance. So rather than having just a kind of housing development, you would have a, more of a city where people pay a residency fee to be part of the city. And then as a uh, result, the city operator if it introduced bad policies that would be bad for its business because people would say oh we don't want to live here it's too restrictive or it's too or it's not controlled enough you know it's maybe it's not secure enough whatever it is and you would have a kind of market that would develop between these different cities with their own regulatory uh, regimes so the focus of the foundation is to raise awareness of this idea of free of free autonomous cities and try and make them happen by channeling investment or brokering conversations with governments in countries that we think are amenable to the ideas. I'm interested to know which countries might be amenable to these ideas because a lot of them, I mean, we had talk in the UK of free ports. Do you remember yes. the chat about free ports? Was that just bogus? Well, I think the free ports were more based on import and export tariffs. And that's, a, uh, that's quite a common model around the world. Uh, places set up, uh, like countries set up special zones where you don't have to pay import and export 
tariffs on things that are coming in or out. And uh, that's fine. But what we want to propose is something that goes a lot further. We're not just saying, let's pull some of the levers down within the existing system, like pull down the, you know, VAT or the tariffs. We're saying, think about the system as a service. Think about the things that you want from your government, like you want to be protected on the streets. You want to know that if you are in a dispute with someone, that there's going to be someone that can arbitrate that dispute. You want to know that the roads are maintained and kept clean. What we're proposing is that that is specified in, in, a, in a contract and is paid for via a fixed monthly fee. And then both sides of that contract, because it's, it's a legal, it's a contract that can be arbitrated by an independent third party. Both sides of that contract, if one side isn't keeping their side of the bargain, then they have recourse to to appeal. And that's the key difference with our model. Yeah. So it's not unlike a subscription model. It's not. No, it's, and, it is a subscription model in a way. And so let's say, but if we if I'm paying my subscription fee yep. and I'm living in one of these free cities, would I still have to pay income tax and corporation tax and whatever else? Ideally not. And we we don't like the idea of any taxes, I, I guess, because I guess tax would be uh, something that is charged, uh, the definition of tax might be something that is charged based on, you know, your nationality and a variable rate based on, um, you know, your economic activity, for example. Whereas what we propose is that we, we move to the same sort of system that we are familiar with in 70% of the areas of life in which we we interact with other people and procure goods and services like we go for a haircut there's a price for the haircut you know that it's going to be good if you mm-hmm. go there there's a price for a computer there's a price for furniture and we in these scenarios we we interact um freely okay on. and presumably if you want the vip service you can get the vip service and if you just want the basic service you can have that yes but again this is something where what we're proposing is we're making a moral and economic argument to say that free cities are a good thing for society and good thing for economic development, good thing for poverty alleviation and a solution, particularly in parts of the world where there is very, there are very big problems with crime. There are very big problems with corruption. People are not in a situation where they can really improve their lives. We're making the moral case that this is a good model, but it's then down to individual entrepreneurs to say, in our circumstances, we think that providing a VIP service for some people or uh, providing, uh, you know, maybe there's one where you have a have a sort of social safety net. Um, a, a, a city could say, we're going to have this as a thing. You pay a bit more, so you pay in. And if someone does have a crisis, this paid for out of the safety net. You know, these would be entrepreneurial decisions. But the key distinction is that it's all specified in the contract. And in five years, if you have more residents in the city that say, hey, we want to do things differently, they can't just turn around and say, hey, we outnumber you now. We're going to change your contract. Every single contract is protected by third party legal arbitration, which means that you can't have someone come in and overturn and impose rules on you that you haven't consented to. OK, so which countries have been um, have been have you approached and who's just said, no, forget about it? And who's actually been quite interested so we've had some conversations with, uh, well, the most the most uh, obvious country is Honduras, where they established the zones for uh, economic development and employment uh, in 2013. 
And there are two zones there that have got physical buildings and, and people living there. One of them is called Prospera, one of them is called Morazan. Both very different kinds of development. Um, the Prospera one is on the island of Rautan. It's um, got, uh, it's kind of catering, I'd say, for a sort of um, higher-end kind of uh, client. And it's, it's catering for lots of international businesses to kind of come and, come and set up there. Um, and I'd say that Morazan is more kind of focused on on the local local Hondurans, attracting local Hondurans to come and work um, with uh, with businesses that are being set up there. Um, so they're both very different um, kinds of kinds of development, and uh, both both really interesting in in their own way. And I've met people employed in uh, Prospera uh, that were thinking of leaving uh, Honduras in order to go to the US to work and who are now staying because they've got all these new opportunities, job opportunities in Prospera. Uh, I've met people in Morazan that are uh, were in a very bad situation in that they had debts and they couldn't pay off, pay these debts off. And within a few months of just setting up their own business in Morazan, they were able to turn that whole situation around. Um, so Honduras is one example. Okay, now the people in those two places mm. in Honduras, as you know, they've got their contract with the governing body of those two places. Yes. Are they beholden to the laws of the rest of Honduras, or does that does that do they have their own little laws? And are they beholden to the tax laws of the rest of Honduras, or, or not? Okay, so the way it works with the ZAs, as they're called. Um, is that the financial and commercial side of the law is largely independent. Criminal law still applies within the zones, although within the zones, uh, the local police have to ask permission to go in if they want to uh, do Track something on site or, yeah. or find someone. They have to ask permission from the owner to go in. And actually, in countries where police corruption is a problem, that can be quite beneficial. So you can have your uh, local privately uh, run police force, which isn't particularly expensive to, to do. Um, you know, it's, it's often worth remembering that there are many, many more private um, security guards in the world than there are actual mm -hmm. policemen. Um, Canary you, Wharf has its own police force. It does it? Okay. Yeah. Well, it's... Uh, in, yeah, in these places, there's... Um, yeah, lots of people that are that are starting to get to get jobs and and uh, build better lives for themselves as a as a result of the opportunities. But uh, on the question of uh, the tax, so these these zones are not exactly what we propose in theory because of legal practicalities. For example, we don't think income tax is a is a good idea, um, but you have to impose you have to have an income tax according to. Uh, according to Honduran law and there's concerns about not having an income tax, maybe getting listed as a, as a, as a tax haven or whatever it is. So these two zones have to impose uh, or do impose a, a, a low income tax. It's 5% in Morazan, it's 10% in, in Prospera. Okay. What is it in the rest of Honduras? I think it's about 21. Okay. And where else are you looking at? Well, we are... Is there are... any interest in Eastern Europe? Well, that's there. There is potentially um, because we've made some connections in some of the non-EU parts of uh, Eastern Europe. Um, the problem I've got, Dominic, is that we we want to be kind of cautious about naming specific okay. countries where we've got leads. But I can say we've got a lead, a strong lead in West Africa, and we're also having conversations 
we've got two two strong leads in the West Africa region, and uh, we've got uh, some, having some good conversations in in the Balkans as well. Okay, the. I mean, if you approached the UK and said, right, we're going to do this in wherever, the Isle of Wight or, you know, Cornwall or yeah. somewhere, um, you've got to acquire the land. Yes. Um, the, the UK wouldn't have it because you just wouldn't want a free trading hub within its own jurisdiction. And you could just say that it already exists in the form of the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man and right. Bermuda and wherever else is already. But so I can see a lot of countries not being amenable to it. And I guess the poorer the part of the world, the more persuadable. Uh, yes, because in poorer parts of the world, people have more acute problems. And uh, the model that we have, the social democratic uh, model, has um, produced a reasonable standard of, of living for people. I would argue that we would have a much higher standard of living if we pursued policies more like Hong Kong pursued after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. But it remains the case that standards of living, that this model can work. The social democratic model can work. Uh, you you uh, tax people on various things. You have various rules. You have a big industry that you employ to make sure people are paying the right tax. That funding goes to the government. The government tries not to spend too much. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you get hyperinflation, but all in all, Western countries are good places to live and people seek to uh, migrate to them. Uh, but I think one of the problems is that all of our histories are very complicated. And what people see is they say, oh, look, isn't life good in Britain? What policies does Britain have? How can we emulate what Britain's doing? When in fact, Britain is not a product, product of its policies now. It's in part a product of them, but really it's a product of policies that have been in place over hundreds of years. And lots of houses, perhaps this one, I don't know, were built during the period of the gold standard or during the period of the industrial revolution. And uh, Britain grew very rapidly uh, to be able to uh, have a huge amount of economic clout and lead the world through a incredibly compared to what we have today, incredibly libertarian system where government spending was very low, something like seven, eight percent of GDP. And also uh, there wasn't really regulation. There was no government funding of science. Um, but Britain, Britain's quality of life really improved. And the problem I think we have today is that in all Western developed nations are moving in a very kind of statist direction and people aren't learning the lessons they're not they're not teasing out the reasons why britain is wealthy i think it's more to do with its historical free market positions and now we're kind of coasting mm -hmm. than it is to do with what we're doing right now yeah the blob is certainly expanding and nobody can stop it um there's two uh just where is where is the free cities foundation based is it in switzerland it is yes and and so you you're a remote worker i am okay as you know, you've read my tax book. <laughs> a great, you've done a thread on it. But I like to use taxation as a barometer of freedom. And you look at, um, and without doubt, you know the the freest, lowest tax, the lowest tax. You can't have freedom without economic freedom. Mm -hmm. Margaret Thatcher quote: "The lowest 
taxed nations in history tended to be the freest, the most prosperous, the most inventive, the most innovative, the most dynamic, all those things, whereas the highest tax yeah. societies didn't, didn't tend to be like that. But there's two types of freedom. Now, you know, there's the famous passage uh, from A.J.P. Taylor's uh, English history in 1914 about how free the Englishman was in 1914. Mm. Taxation was only at 8% of GDP. He could have gone through life and barely noticed the existence mm. of the state beyond the post office and the uh, 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 and the policeman. Uh, you could travel around the world uh, without a passport. There were no capital controls. You could Any money could come in, any money could go out. I mean, I think one of the reasons that there were no capital controls is that money was harder. Money was, um, you know, based on telegrams sent between organisations or cash. Uh, so it was just harder to police in a way that the digital economy is much hard, easier to control. But anyway, so we were freer in that sense in 1914 than we are now. Um, and, you, you know, tax as a percentage of GDP across Western Europe and the United States was, was say, call it 10% at that time. Yeah. And now it's 50% mm. for the sake of argument. It's, it is, it's over 50% by the time you factor in inflation. Sure. Um, but we're also freer today than we were then in the sense that we're more liberated, we're more empowered. You know, I can sit here and use this bit of tech and record an amazing podcast. I've got central heating, running water. I've got a car outside. I can go anywhere in the world. I can get a plane. I can get my phone out and have a conversation with anyone in the world for free. A video call. I've got access to unlimited information on the internet, all the rest of it. So in that sense, we're freer than we've ever been. And a statist would go... You know, that's because of regulation and government planning and all the rest of it. Mm. And, and a libertarian would go, no, it's not. It's because that's people acting in their own self-interest of developing great bits of tech and we all benefit. But the... So do you buy the... Do, what, what do you think about that argument that we, in a way, we're freer than ever because we're more empowered than ever? I would largely agree with that. I think there are certain specific areas where maybe we are, we are less free, but... One of the things that I personally always emphasize... Like you, could go, you could go anywhere in 1910, but you couldn't get there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now you can't go anywhere, but you can get there. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> One of the things that I always like to emphasize is how immeasurably lucky all of us are to be living in the period that we are living in right now. Because compared to virtually any historical period, we are so well off um, that... It, it's, it wouldn't have been imaginable to our ancestors to have all the things that we have. However, it's a logical fallacy to look at a situation and say, things were worse then, things are better now, therefore what we did was the right thing. It's a bit like going to a desert island and you see someone who's been on the desert island for one year and you know they turned up with nothing at all and then they've got a hammock you know, a little raft and they built themselves a little mud hut and then you come along and say well that's good um you know you've made made progress in a year then you see someone else who's got a speedboat and a massive condo and mm -hmm. uh, you know it's got their own farm or, or whatever like with time capital accumulates technology improves we, population grows, which is a very key um, contributor to our wealth. And things will tend to get better as long as you don't have a system where 
private property rights are completely undermined. And I would say that we have got, there's no period other than the period we are living in today in, in the year 2022 that I would rather live in in human history than today. Um, but there is still a huge amount of suffering in the world. And if there's an alternative world in which things could be a lot better than they are today, a bit like, you know, for us, maybe we're, we're thinking ahead and it would be a bit like our ancestors in 1900 thinking about us having this, this heating, this, this running water, um, the uh, you know, television, communications, all this stuff. There's a better future out there and there's a huge amount of suffering right now. And that's a tragedy. And so our aim should always be to try and improve as fast as possible because there's a lot of suffering out there and it's a moral imperative that we seek to alleviate that as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I do think, I haven't actually got any data on this, but, but I think, you know, my generation, I'm 52. So my kids, my eldest kid's 21. Uh, like the next generation could well end up poorer than my generation, large, mainly because of house prices and higher taxes which is just nuts. And I think you'd struggle, if you went back through history, you'd f struggle f to find times when the next generation is poorer than the last. They'll be like, you know, maybe born after a war or after a famine or something mm. like that. But probably the Dark Ages were the last mm. time that mm. happened consistently when after the Romans left, which is pretty damning. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I blame it on fiat money. I'm sure uh, you, you, you've, as a Bitcoiner who works for Saferdeen, I'm sure you share a similar view, but it's pretty bad. It is. Uh, again, again, I, I don't necessarily even take the view that the next generation will be worse off. It would. Uh, it's very hard to make these kinds of predictions, but it could be the case because we are at a period in a period where you know, debt to GDP levels are unprecedented. We've been through these, you know, very strange period in financial markets and, uh, you know, interest rates are low. And we're now starting to see very high inflation impact the economy. And we're starting to see issues like the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So there are some pretty troubling things going on out there. Um, but, um, Sorry, what was the question in terms well, of... Well, I'm just commenting on, on on this generation being poorer than the next. Oh, fiat money, sorry. Yeah, and yeah. I was blaming on fiat money. I was going to say that, to me, fiat money is a, is a great problem because what it does is it increases our time preference. It means that we have less incentive to save for the future and we have more incentive to go into debt pin ourselves down uh, to a specific path early on because when the value of the nominal unit of currency is falling it makes sense to have debt and it makes sense not to hold a lot of savings and it makes sense to buy things now rather than wait until later and the other huge effect it has on the economy is that it financializes the entire economy and creates industries that otherwise would either not exist or be a lot smaller um, this country is a, is a great example of how we have a hugely dominant financial services industry, which is basically 
designed to help people find to help fight what government manufactures now, if people had the ability to save in a sound money that could not be inflated like gold or like bitcoin then there would be no need for us to employ all of these uh, specialists in uh, you know how to how to increase your yeah financial your planners and planners yeah, and all the rest all of, of this all of this stuff there would still be entrepreneurial investments but it wouldn't work in the way that we that it works now where we expect that you can put your money in a bank take it out on demand and that it's also going to be invested in things we would have investment firms with fixed dates of maturity on their investments and that would be normal and that would carry risk and then we would just have money and i think that would be a world where there's much less of a feeling of a rat race where there's much more long-term thinking where there's much less um consumerism in the sense of like you know keeping up with the joneses and all of this by going into lots of debt it would just allow people to be a bit calmer in their lives and say i can invest if i want to but i can also put this money aside for a rainy day and i know it's going to be worth the same or more later yeah the s p 500 is basically america's saving vehicle is it yeah <laughs> i mean that's yeah, you just don't have your cash in the bank you just stick it in the s p well, it's yeah, with with the ETFs, um, the eighteen sixteen or eighteen seventeen in the during the Napoleon Napoleonic Wars, we came off the gold standard in the UK to print the money to pay for the war. Where have you heard that before? <laughs> but um, eighteen sixteen, eighteen seventeen, we went back on, and there was what's known as the second great recoinage, and a pound, mm. then the sovereign, after eighteen say eighteen twenty. Mm bought you more by the end of the century than it did at the beginning of, uh, than it did in 1820 yes. in other words the purchasing power of money increased over that 80 year period and and on top of that salaries increased as well yes and it's just a whole state of being that's how things should be because you get better at making stuff and so you get you're able to sell it for less and the quality of what you sell is better you know that's the nature of progress but you don't see it with with the pound and with the pound as it is today. Yeah. We're, we're just used to stuff, even computers, getting more, um, getting more expensive. Very sad. Um, Peter, how does the uh, Free Cities Foundation fund itself? So we're funded by donations, um, and we have an annual conference for which we sell tickets and sponsorships. So the conference we run is called Liberty in Our Lifetime. And it's taking place this year in October from the 21st to the 23rd. Um, we sell tickets for that and any uh, additional uh, money that's made over from that conference goes into our uh, into our uh, coffers. Uh, we also take uh, private donations from people who believe in in the idea of, of free cities and want to promote what we're doing. And we have a close uh, commercial partner called Tipolis, um, which is actively investing in, in projects and um, occasionally will donate to the foundation uh, as well. Great stuff. And how do we find out more about the project? So you can visit our website, which is www.freecities.net. You can follow us on Twitter, which is at free, uh, free cities. Sorry, uh, free private city is our Twitter handle. Free private city. That's correct, yes. Um, we're using the name Free Cities now because we're trying to encompass a bit more of a broader approach to, to projects. Mm. So um, there's kind of this this privately owned city model. There's also intentional communities, also sometimes we call prosperity zones. So it's all coming under this kind of Free Cities banner. 
Um, and if you want to find out more about Liberty in Our Lifetime, the conference, um, it's going to be a great event. It's three days taking place in Prague. We're going to have a, a number of uh, very high-profile high speakers and lots of the projects that align to our ethos are going to be showcased there. So if you're interested in what an autonomous city might look like in the 21st century, this is the place where you'll get to see what's being uh, done. And you can find out more about that at the website, which is www.lifetimeliberty.com. And there is a chance that I'll be speaking at it. We talked about that, didn't we? We did, and we would absolutely love to have you, Dominic, if you're... But I you might have prefer. to go to New Orleans, so I'm not quite sure, but there is right. a chance. That was Alexa listening in. Um, anyway, right... I listen um, when you say my name. Can you hear that? Did you hear that? Which I just got heckled by Alexa. <laughs> um, thank you very much for listening, folks. This is Make Money and Stick It to the Man with me, Dominic Frisbee. If you like the show, please tell your friends, share it on social media, do all that stuff, and subscribe to my Substack channel. I'll be back very soon. <laughs>